Good morning. Let's go ahead and take our seats. You can open to the book of Ruth. We're going to read the first few verses of that. I say we, but Ricky will read the first few verses of that. This morning's reading comes from Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This is the word of the Lord. So this week we took my son Daniel to Campbell University. So he's starting at Campbell this fall. So we dropped him off there on Friday. And for the freshmen at Campbell, they have a thing called Tartan. It's a weird name, I know. Tartan. Now Tartan is actually, uh, it's got a history. So Campbell started uh, from a, a guy who's a Scotsman. Uh, actually born in Anger, but he's got a Scottish heritage. Uh, but he's the, uh, Campbell uh, started... Um, <clears throat> Mr. Campbell started Campbell in the 1800s. But tartan is this Scottish cloth. So it's a woolen cloth. You get the, you get the yarn, you dye it, and you, and you uh, weave it in a very specific way. And the pattern would be distinct for each clan, each Scottish clan, like MacLeod or MacLellan or MacLawhorn. So all those distinctive Scottish clans would have a distinctive, uh, distinctive tartan. John offered, actually, to wear his, his, his kilt stitched with his tartan, uh, distinctive tartan, but he did not. Yeah, yeah, we assured him that was a good call. But this idea of tartan is a, it actually, it's a fitting image for the morning. So you, if, you, if you take a bunch of dyed cloth uh, and just see it scattered, well, it's, it's not pretty, it's a mess, right? But if you sk- skillfully weave it in this very intricate precise, intentional way, well, suddenly it communicates something. It's part of something beautiful and organized and intentional. And that's what we see here in our story of Ruth. So in some ways, Ruth and Boaz are, they're doing very simple things. I mean, they're heroic and they're uh, impressive in, in terms of character, but in some ways they're doing very simple things. They're, they're living lives, they're making decisions they think are good for the people that, that they're connected to. So impressive acts of integrity, all in these kind of micro ways. But we as the, as the reader and the author is going to help us with this, we as readers get to step back and see, oh no, wait a minute, these, these little acts of, of color and dye and, and yarn are connected to this beautiful massive tartan, this tapestry, which is being woven by God himself. So they're connected to this huge thing. And in fact, this huge thing reaches centuries before them and it reaches actually into eternity ahead of them without exaggeration. So it reaches centuries in the, back, in the past and then uh, eternity into the future. And we'll see that we ourselves are connected to that same tartan, that same tapestry as the people of faith. We're connected in a different way. We're connected by faith. And actually, they were connected by faith as well and not, not just by these, these, uh, these acts of marriage and having children. 
So this series is The Unexpected Kindness of God. So this series through Ruth, this is, a, this is part four before part series. So The Unexpected Kindness of God has been the theme. And this morning, The Unexpected Kindness of God we want to be thinking about is this notion that, that when you become a Christian, you become part of the richest of all heritages with the greatest of all futures. As a Christian, you become part of the richest of all heritages with the greatest of all futures. And that's, that's true for all of us. Whether we feel that way or not, that's true of us if you're a Christian. So that we're just going to trace the plot line of the passage. Uh, number one, the transaction. There's a transactional thing that happens here in the opening eight verses. And then these witness statements. So first by Boaz and then by the witnesses around him. And then the third thing is the results of this, which uh, extend far and wide. And if you're not a Christian, it's a great story. So enjoy the story. However, it's also a story that reminds us that Jesus is, is not just a myth. He isn't a myth, actually. He's not just, it's, not, it's not that he's not just a myth. He's not a myth. But he's actually part of this history, this very established, lengthy history. And so he's a historical figure, and we'll tap into actually some of that history this morning. So before we proceed, let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing your, your plans and purposes to us, at least in some way. We know you haven't revealed everything to us, of course. How could we, as finite beings, possibly understand the workings of an infant being like yourself? But you have revealed some things, Lord. And so we just pray that we would enjoy what you have revealed, that we would bask in it, that we would understand it, that we would revel in it, and that for those who are not Christians, that they would enter into it in a special, personal way, even today. It's a history that's available for them as well. This heritage, this future is available to them as well. So help them, Lord, to enter in by faith, even today. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, number one, the transaction. First eight verses. So Boaz, so this is basically later the same day. So end of chapter three. Uh, so you have the midnight encounter between uh, Ruth and Boaz. Uh, a marriage proposal is, is, is offered and received and, and uh, received affirmatively. And then at the very end of the chapter, it, uh, Naomi says basically, Bo- Boaz is not going to rest until this matter is settled. And so later that day, so that happens you know, early in the morning. So later that day, Boaz goes up to the gate, the gate of Bethlehem, which is the city where all this takes place. And the gate would have been significant militarily. So you've got a wall around the city and you've got a gate and so if, if there's a threat of an enemy, well, you've got guys in the watchtowers in this gate, and they're going to be able to uh, keep guard but also attack if anyone attacks the city. But the gates were also significant because that's the place of business and, and, and official transactions that would occur in a, in, a, in a village like this. So if there was a trial that had to be held, there was an accusation made, a trial had to be held, well, the elders of the city would gather at the gate, and they would have that trial or some kind of official business, which is what we're going to read about here. It would always take place at the gates. And so Boaz goes to that place, he sits down, and behold, the Redeemer. So it's kind of unexpected that, re- that the Redeemer that he cares about would come at that very moment. So this is kind of that hidden hand of God moment uh, that we've seen so many of in Ruth. So the Redeemer comes, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. And friend is deceptive to us. Uh, that, that's really just a filler word. They had to put something in there. <clears throat> friend actually, it communicates something which to us wouldn't be accurate, which is that there was an affection, relationship, that kind of thing. But actually the real Hebrew here means Mr. So-and-so. Uh, turn aside here, Mr. So-and-so. So it's, you know, it's, if, it was, uh, if it was a Jane Austen novel, I've mentioned Jane Austen a couple times, if it was a Jane Austen novel, there might just be a blank line. You know, sometimes in, in old novels, there's these blank lines for names. Uh, so turn aside Mr. So-and-so. And the, the reason to belabor that is that the author intentionally left out the guy's name. He's intentionally forgotten in Israel's history. So Boaz's history is very intentionally preserved. Mr. So-and-so's is not. And that's actually a statement of character. It's a judgment made about about these two men. Boaz is a man worth remembering. Mr. So-and-so, he isn't. And for reasons we're about to explore here. 
So anyway, Mr. So-and-so comes and sits down. And so then Boaz took 10 men of the elders. And that's actually a statement of his significance in the city. A guy who can just rally 10 official men in the city is not an unimportant man in the city. He's a man of respect. He's a landowner. He's a citizen in Bethlehem. So he gathers these 10 men, which is, which is in some ways a quorum. You know, a, a certain number of men are going to be required to bear witness to the transaction that's about to take place. And so he says, sit down. So they sit down. So then he, then he starts his negotiation. So, of course, Boaz, in his mind, wants the land and Ruth. But this guy, he thinks, maybe doesn't want all of that. So he structures these negotiations very carefully. So, so Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it today and say, buy in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know that, that for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So it's a little hint, like, hey, by the way, I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So what's going on here? Well, we've talked about this a couple times, that uh, at, at this point in Israel's history, when you be, um, you know, then as now, if you became poor, you, you sometimes had to sell your land. However, land needed to stay with the tribe that it, it was originally given by Joshua in the book of Joshua. Land needed to stay with the tribe. And so selling land was kind of a big deal. And so basically what was set up was these, these ways that you could sell land, but it was always temporary. The land would always return back to the original owners. And so one way that would happen is the, is the year of Jubilee. So every 50 years, and there's actually no record of this ever happening, but God laid out in, in the Mosaic law that every 50 years, land would return to the original owners, regardless of whether the person had the money to pay for it. It would just return back automatically. So it was just a, a fascinating way of just eliminating debts instantaneously. The other way is redemption. And that's where someone else might come along and buy the land and buy it back on your behalf, as it were. And so the land would stay in your name, someone else paying the price for it. And so in this case, basically the guy is, is, is being given an offer, and he assumes it's basically, I'm going to get some land here. I'm going to be able to buy some land, maybe temporarily till the year of Jubilee. Not sure what, what he has in mind here. Uh, but he's thinking, I can add land to the land I already possess. I'm going to increase my, uh, the, uh, my crops. And so I'll increase my money. And so he's, at this point, he's willing. And maybe he just knows that Naomi is not of childbearing age, so having a, an heir with her is not part of the equation. It's just land. So he says, I will redeem it. Well, it's at that point Boaz says, oh, by the way, there's this other thing that's part of this. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. And I'm sure he emphasized Moabite. I mean, who would want to marry a Moabite? Ruth the Moabite. You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Well, at this point, the guy's like, ah, ah, maybe time out, not so sure. So then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And one of the fascinating things here is this guy actually isn't breaking Mosaic law. Uh, if, you, if you look at the letter of the law, the letter of the law actually doesn't require him to do what Boaz is asking him to do. The spirit of the law does, but not necessarily the letter of the law, which would be the brother of the, of the deceased man. But the spirit of the law is to redeem those who are in need of redemption. That's the spirit of the law. And so Boaz, in some ways, is being commended for doing really more than what the letter of the law of Moses requires. If you look at just the Leverett marriage law, the Leverett redemption law. So Mr. So-and-so is unwilling. Boaz is willing to redeem. And so he does what we all do when we make a transaction. We, we take off our sandal and give it to the guy. <laughs> so in verse 6, now this was the custom in former times in Israel uh, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Uh, well, it's what we all do, right? You know, we accept credit cards or, or Venmo or sandals, you know, when you're going to 
Are you going to buy your cup of coffee there? So he goes through with it. And the point uh, I want to make from this is simply that Boaz followed through on his word. He committed to Ruth and and thus to to Naomi. He committed to Ruth and to Naomi that he would redeem them. Uh, Actually, what he said was, I need to present this to the the redeemer who's in front of me in line. And if he redeems you, great. But if not, I will redeem you. And so he does. He's a man of his word. And at this point, um, we don't get all the details of it, but there's a cost. There's a cost of following through on his word. He had to redeem, it's going to take money. He's going to have to put forward some money to buy the land and to buy, in a, in a sense, buy the bride, uh, Ruth. And it's just helpful to remember that, that, that love and integrity have a cost. There's always a cost to those. You, you, don't, you, can't, you can't do those things without any cost to yourself. There's always a personal cost to be, being a man or a woman of integrity, a man or a woman who's going to love someone else. Love requires sacrifice. So in 1 John, this is, in some ways, this is simple and obvious, and yet it's helpful just to see it. This is 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So it's nice to have good intentions. It's nice to say things that sound good and loving and affectionate. But even better is deeds of love and truthfulness as you live your life. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love requires sacrifice. Integrity requires sacrifice. Elizabeth Elliot lost her first husband as, as a missionary. He died for the cause of being a missionary. She did not. <clears throat> and so reflecting on that, she said this. This is from her book, Shadow of the Almighty. She asked this question, is the distinction between living for Christ and dying for him, after all, so great? Is not the second the logical conclusion of the first? So we, in some ways, we think of Elizabeth Elliot and Jim Elliot in these very different ways. He died for Christ. Yeah, but she lived for Christ. And what she's saying here is that it's not really different. You know, dying for Christ is really the end result of someone who's living for Christ. Sacrifice required. To live a life of integrity, godliness, obedience, sacrifice will be required. We don't know what sacrifices are going to be required. All of you, one way or another, have made sacrifices as Christians. We don't know what the future holds in terms of sacrifices, but we know that there will be sacrifices required to live lives of integrity. That's just the way it is. So that's the first thing, the transaction. Then the second thing is the witness statements in verses 9 through 12. So he drew off a sandal, you know, does, does the sandal thing. And then he, he basically just makes a verbal statement in front of all the witnesses. So verses 9, and, uh, so then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his, of this, of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So two witness statements. And at this point, a nice marriage story is, is put into a different light. And we'll, we'll see how in just a second. The first statement is made by Boaz. So he speaks to the witnesses. You are witnesses of these things. And what he underscores here is that in, in, in following through on this action... I'm essentially lowering my name. In a a sense, I'm erasing my name from from Israel's history in order to preserve the name of Elimelech. Now, the irony, of course, is is his name is celebrated because of these acts, right? And so we're reading about his history uh, as, you know, in 2022 here because of what he did. However, 
What he thought he was doing was kind of lowering himself, uh, setting aside his own name for the sake of protecting the name of Elimelech, the dead. And so in marrying Ruth, he was, he was preserving Malon's name, her first husband. And then and so in preserving Malon's name, he was preserving Malon's father's name, which is Elimelech. So that's, that's what he's saying there. So I'm lowering myself to preserve this other person. So, and this is uh, just a picture of the generosity and the sacrifice of Boaz, of course. And then you get the statement by those who were gathered there in 11 and 12. Um, so we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. So this is the first of three blessings. There's kind of a triple blessing given from these witnesses to Boaz. And this is the first one. May the, may the Lord make the, make the woman like Rachel and Leah, who built up the house of Israel. Now, what we, we go on to learn is that, that uh, you have Israel, which is another name for Jacob. Jacob is given the name Israel when he wrestles with God. You have Jacob, and then the son Jacob is Judah, and then Judah's son is Perez. And so Boaz is descended from Perez, that son of Judah. So what they're basically wishing for at this point uh, is that your son, the son that, that Ruth would have for you, may that son be significant. That's basically what they're praying, is that may the son of Ruth be a significant person in the history of Israel. And then the second blessing is may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Literally, may you be named. May you be named in Bethlehem. And the idea there is, maybe it's sort of a double meaning. One, one aspect of it is, it is just that your family line would continue in Bethlehem. And then the second aspect of that is that may you be renowned, famous, proclaimed, celebrated in Bethlehem. And of course he is. But uh, at, at this point, there's no, no one knows the future, right? Who's living out these events. And the irony here is that the the written history does preserve the name of Boaz in this really powerful way. So he himself is long dead, but his name is preserved because of this written history which we celebrate. So there's a great parallel to that in a Shakespeare sonnet, which I'm sure you guys have heard. It's the one that begins, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. And so he goes on to compare his lover in a summer's day in, in these different aspects. But the truth is that a summer's day will fade disappear. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou ownest. Nor shall death brag thou, uh, brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. In other words, what he's saying is that in some way, my lover lives on through these lines which I have penned. And who knows what Shakespeare really expected when he wrote that? Did he really expect that men would forever, you know, centuries after centuries be reading his, his sonnets? We have no idea. But it, it was fulfilled. And in that way, Boaz is the same. May you be named in Israel. You know, he, he lives on in, Israel, uh, in Bethlehem because of the, this written history in, in, in the book of Ruth. Well, then you get to the third blessing, which is much more complicated. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And if you know biblical history, you're probably thinking, what in the world is he going to say here? <clears throat> if you don't know biblical history, well, Genesis 38 is where the history comes from. So these, these three figures, Perez, Tamar, and Judah, have a very unusual relationship. So uh, Tamar starts out as the wife of Judah's son. Her, son uh, the, the, her husband dies, and so the brother, uh, her, uh, her husband is Ur, so Onan is the brother. So Ur is killed, actually because he's wicked, he's killed by the Lord. And so Onan then is, to, is, is then to marry Tamar and have a child so that the line of Onan can continue. So it's a lever at marriage. Well, Onan dies. He doesn't fulfill his obligations in a very uh, uh, explicit way, and so he's killed by the Lord. And so Tamar's like, well, what do I do now? And so Judah makes a promise. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, make good on that promise. So she sets up this, this very uh, unusual situation where she, she seduces Judah, and they have a child together. And so that child is Perez. 
Now, obviously, what is being said here is not that, may that kind of thing happen to you, Boaz. <laughs> now, that's a, that's, uh, what's being said here is that may the, may the offspring of this leveret marriage, as unusual as it was back in Genesis, may the offspring of the leveret marriage be as famous and important as the offspring of Judah. So may your leveret marriage have a future like this leveret marriage, even though the, the details are, are colorful. May your, may your leveret marriage have a great future. So that's what's being said here. But what we want to focus on um, is thinking of this scene here from Ruth's perspective. Because really what's being said here is that, you know, she's this, this, uh, this dyed yarn, you know, back to our tartan image. She's this dyed yarn from Moab connected to the Moabites, and we have no reason to think she, ha- she has any other connection to Israel at all than what we're reading about here. So she's a Moabite. And yet, the Lord in his providence said, you know what, I think I want to bring a Moabite into this, this elaborate tartan I'm creating. And so she marries Boaz. They have a child, Obed, and then we'll, we'll read about the future. But at this point, what we know is, is the connection to Israel's past. So at this point, we know Boaz is, is from the line of Perez, and therefore Judah, and therefore Jacob, and therefore Isaac, and therefore Abraham. So she marries into Israel. She marries into the greatest of all earthly heritages at that time, which is Israel. She marries into the nation of Israel. And so she is suddenly given this glorious past, this glorious heritage. And the, the similarity for us, and we'll dwell on this a uh, little, bit, little bit later in the sermon uh, more, but the similarity for us is when you become a Christian, you're also engrafted into this glorious heritage. You're part of the people of God. You're part of the church. You're part of the body of Christ. And so you're, you're swept up into all the things described in this book. You're swept up into that. You know, whatever Ancestry.com says of your past you as a Christian, by faith, spiritually, truly, are integrated into this history. This history is your history. You're part of these people. By faith, yes. Not biologically, but by faith, yes. You're part of this history as a Christian. So you're given the best of all heritages. You know, it's rooted in the people of God. And we'll see that it also extends into your future as well, the most glorious of all futures. So that's the second point, the witnesses. Now we get to the results. So at this point, they're not, uh, as of verse 12, they're not married. So when we get to verse 13, they are. So some time has passed. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Or nanny is is really a better uh, interpretation there. Doing what a grandmother would do with with her grandson, in other words. Laid him on her lap and became his nanny. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. All right, so let's trace these ripple effects. Well, first thing that happens is that Boaz took Ruth. He got his wife. The wife got her husband. They were married. She became his wife. And so that's, that's um, it's, the, it's the end of this, this really wonderful kind of progression in Ruth's life. You know, she came into town as a foreigner. Identified, she identified herself as a foreigner. And she was identified as a foreigner by others. In fact, a Moabite, which is in some ways even worse than being just from a, just another country than Israel. She's a Moabite, Ruth the Moabitess. 
But then, and then she, and she identifies herself to Boaz as one of his maidservants, and yet not one of his maidservants, even lower than the other maidservants. He's got an official group of servants, and she's below that. Well, then during the proposal, she identifies herself as a servant, not quite as low as before, but still as a servant. And then finally, she's the wife. She's the wife of Boaz. And so, and he's a significant figure. So it's a, it's, it's a glorious story. It's a, it's a bit rags to riches. It's a bit Cinderella, all wrapped up in there. Jane Austen, even, you might say. <clears throat> so she comes in one way, and she leaves the, the wife of Boaz. So that's the first ripple effect, is that she, she has something she truly desired, and the Lord was gracious in giving to her. And then she has a son. And so much is going to be uh, connected to the fact she had a son. You know, if they got married and, and didn't have any children, well, then there would be no book of Ruth in our Bibles. But they get married and have a son. But the, but the author is very specific. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. It's just a reminder there that any time a child is born, especially a son is born in this kind of context, that's the Lord doing it. You know, it's not just the natural flow of, of birds and bees type stuff. <clears throat> it's the Lord doing it. And so that's, that's both wonderful and sobering at the same time, you know, depending on our experience with that. But the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then there's Naomi. <clears throat> and Naomi doesn't just disappear uh, silently in the story, but in some ways the, the author saw fit to just kind of close the book on Naomi in a really beautiful, tender way. And so the women, so she has this son, the women say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Restorer of life is a great phrase. It's actually the same uh, wording as uh, he restores my soul in Psalm 23. So this, this child is going to have that effect to her, just restoring her soul. You know, she was empty and felt God forsaken but her soul itself will be somehow replenished, restored because of this, this son. And then this son is going to be a nourisher of your old age. In some ways, her, her future provision is connected to this, this son being born. And then verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And in some ways, this, the whole book of Ruth could have ended right there. and It would be a great ending. Beautiful story of marriage and, and God providing for uh, two widows, in fact, in a, in a similar way. Uh, a, a man finding a wife, beautiful story. People acting with integrity and, and not, not self-serving, but serving others, willing to sacrifice for the sake of that. The story, the story could have ended right there. And at this point, we don't, really, we don't really get the story. So then in verse 17, it, there's this whole other ripple effect that happens. So the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, which means servant. There's a lot of Obed-type names in the Bible, a lot of Obadiahs in the Bible, which means servant of Yahweh. So to call him Obed is great. It's a good name, solid name. They named him Obed. But then, it's, then is the big plot twist. He was the father of Jesse. We did not see that coming. And obviously, the father of Jesse is the father of David. We did not see that coming. So suddenly, it's like, wait a minute. I need to go back to the beginning of the story and read this whole thing again. I did not know that David and Ruth had the connection that they had. I thought it was just this great story of, of integrity and wisdom and whatever, obedience, life lessons, whatever. But now I was like, no, wait a minute. This is, this, is, this is the story of David, David's family. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then you get a genealogy. I know what you're thinking. I love genealogies. They're so fascinating. That's my, favorite, that's my favorite thing in Cornerstone Readers when we get to the genealogies that go on forever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> but the thing with genealogies, what you always want to do is, is it's kind of like a, a Where's Waldo situation. You just want to, something's different here. There's something about the genealogy which is important. O oftentimes it's where it begins and ends. This one ends with David. That tells you, oh, this is a big deal. It's David's genealogy. But once you, once you do a little bit of uh, brainstorming and thinking, you realize there's some other things about this genealogy, which you learn in Matthew chapter 1, 
which are really fascinating. So Perez, we've already, we've already seen, that's a colorful situation. So Perez is there. That's the start of this line. Of course, Perez is the son of Judah. So Perez is there. And then you get Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Aminadab, Nashon. Nashon's kind of an interesting figure because his sister marries Aaron the high priest, Moses' brother. So Nashon's sister marries Aaron the high priest. That's kind of significant. Nashon fathered Salmon. I love Salmon. That might be what you're thinking. Salmon is interesting because he married Rahab, the harlot, from Jericho. So that's an interracial marriage with some spice in it, just like Boaz and Ruth, interracial marriage. But Salmon marries uh, Rahab, and so they have, they're, they're the parents of Boaz. So obviously Boaz, you know, in some ways, he was the perfect, he was the perfect man to marry Ruth because he really had a category for what God can do in an unexpected marriage, right? So all that is to say you have two interracial marriages within not very many generations in the line of David. That's fascinating. So some, the, someone from Jericho, someone from Moab. But the key, the key is Perez to Judah. That's actually the key of this genealogy. It's not made over the top uh, explicit and clear, but we already know from earlier in, this, in, in chapter 4 that Perez is the son of Judah. And the reason that's a big deal is because, so this, this now ties David to Judah, and you might be thinking, okay, I still don't get it, still don't get it. But the reason that's significant is because of, of, a, of a, a blessing that Jacob speaks over his 12 sons as he's dying. And so as he's, as he's dying, he speaks this this prophetic blessing over Judah, his son. And you don't want to read this and say, oh yeah, he told that to everybody. Because that's not the way the blessings worked in the book of Genesis. Basically, what you give to one, you can't give to another. So just know that. So this is, this is uh, Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. That's a tough word for the other 11 sons, isn't it? Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. You're the ruling scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall the obedience, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That is quite a promise. So all the other tribes will bow down to you, and basically you will always have a son on the throne forever. Forever. And the obedience of the peoples, the nations, the world shall come to you. Well, that makes you, makes you think. A little bit about King David, certainly. <clears throat> so David is now, we know, from the line of Judah. And we see now the significance of that. So David's dynasty is significant. You know, in, if you go to Wikipedia, you can see the list of the dynasties of the world. And David's dynasty is right there. 400 years is a long time to have a dynasty you know, in, your, in your family. But that isn't the scepter not departing from David. It still doesn't fulfill that. A long reign... You know, it doesn't say the scepter shall not depart from Judah for a really long time. It just says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And yes, during uh, the Davidic reign, there were Philistines and other nations uh, in the surrounding regions that did give obedience to, to Judah uh, through, through the Davidic king. However, all the peoples, that didn't begin to happen. So you have to fast forward this other king this other son of Judah, this other offspring of David is going to be the fulfillment of this. And so when you get to Matthew 1, Matthew wants you, wants you to get it. He wants us to get it. He wants us to remember things like that Genesis 49 prophecy, and he wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of that. And so as he launches into his book, he does what we always love. He gives a genealogy. So I'll read, I won't read all the verses, but just the scattering. So Matthew 1, start of our New Testament, 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And then we skip ahead a lot of generations. And Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. He is the king who will reign forever. He is the king who will receive all the obedience of the nations. That's the one. The book of Ruth helps us to see that connection between uh, <clears throat> Judah to David, but also we know that doesn't quite fulfill that that Genesis 49 promise. It has to be another king in the line of Judah who's going to fulfill that. And that, line, that fulfillment is Jesus. And so it's no accident that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He doesn't have to be born in Bethlehem just because he's, you know, he's, he's, a, he's an offspring of David. However, he is born in Bethlehem. A king born in Bethlehem, is, that, is, that gets our attention, doesn't it? But the other, other thing we want to say here, though, is that Jesus isn't the fulfillment of the king because... He's in the right, he's got the right family tree, at least through Joseph. That's not why he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So we're going to fast forward now to Revelation. Revelation 5, one of the great Christological passages in our Bibles. So then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So you've got the throne of God, you've got all the angelic beings uh, in the heavens, and then you have this discussion about scrolls, and the scrolls represent history. Who's worthy to, to understand and, and, and exercise the history, the future history that God has designed? Who is worthy to do that and to break its, and to break its seals? In other words, who can enable the, the last things to actually happen? Who is worthy enough to make that happen? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So God looked at us, or the, or the angelic beings were looking at us and saying, there's, there's no one worthy there. This crowd, this isn't going to cut it. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. So John the Apostle writing this. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. John, as a revelator, can use mixed metaphors. You know, we, maybe we can't in our English classes. He can use a mixed metaphor. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a lamb standing as if slain with seven horns and seven eyes. Seven being the number of perfection. So all horns is power. So all power, seven eyes, all seeing, all knowing. So which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the, from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. That's why he's the line of the tribe of Judah. That's why he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. Not because he had a you know, heroic fight with a big guy named Goliath. It's because he was slain for our sins to accomplish our redemption. That's why he's worthy. Because he was slain. Worthy are you for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That's our king. That's the promised king. So Judith, uh, or Jacob, when he was making this, this, 
this blessing promised to Judah, imagine certainly an earthly king. He had no idea that the fulfillment wasn't going to be Jesus, the lion standing uh, as a lamb, as those slain. That's the fulfillment of that great Genesis 49 promise. And yes, we will sing, is he worthy at the end of our service? So before we get to that moment, uh, let's think about this. So we're now done with the book of Ruth. And we want to remember that all of the integrity we read about, all of the blessings that are received and, and extended, all of this happens in the time of the judges. It was a terrible time in Israel's history. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Doesn't that sound familiar? There was no king, there was no law of the land, where there was no moral code that seemed to bind all of the nations, or to bind the nation of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And yet, in the midst of that moral disaster is the book of Ruth. Godly people doing godly things and being blessed by God. Just, it's just good to remember that, because our day is, is like the time of the judges, isn't it? There's not this binding moral compass on our nation. We live in a time where people are doing what is right in their own eyes so much of the time. And yet, even in that, even in this moral disaster, godly people doing godly things will be blessed by God. He is not blind to our circumstances. He is there. And all the, the little things, little moments of our lives, he is there. We want to think about Boaz, who laid down his own name. He, did, he, did, he performed some actions which could have cost his own notoriety completely, his own uh, remembrance completely, where his name is forgotten in history. And yet it happened to be that in his setting aside his own name, well, his name was remembered, and it is remembered and celebrated. And that too is, that's a good lesson for life, isn't it? That all the time the answer is for us to set, is to lay aside our own name. Now, this is not about me and my reputation, my esteem in the eyes of men. I need to do what's right for the sake of others and ultimately for the name that is above every name, which is Jesus Christ. And then we see Ruth. So her embracing this life of faith that had had a very uncertain uncertain future to it, her embracing this life of faith where your God is my God, your people is my people, well, she is swept up in this, this rich history and this glorious future, this history which she couldn't have imagined. You know, she's part of the people of God. And then she's part of this future, which at the, at the time of the writing of Ruth, they didn't understand. We see it. We get to peer just a little bit into the new heavens and the new earth and the book of Revelation and see there's an amazing future coming. And as the people of God, we are part of that by faith. Not by marriage, by faith. Not through a child or a son that's born to us, but by faith. You know, a great marriage is a good thing. But if you lack faith, you will not share in the future that we're talking about, this glorious future. Without faith in Jesus Christ as your king, as your Lord, without faith in him, you will not share in that. You do not get to share in the people of God and the history that they have. And sometimes it's a history you don't want to associate with, but ultimately we do. We do. We want to be part of the body of Christ, God's people, God's chosen people. Galatians 3 ends with just a reminder that this, uh, this people is, is a people that we join by faith. Not by birth, but by faith. And John, you can bring the team up. Paul writes to the Galatians that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor Moabite. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. There's two groups I was thinking about that can especially enter into these, into the book of Ruth. One is, is the group that's feeling, if you're currently feeling the cost, the price of integrity, the sacrifice required for integrity. Maybe it's a stand you've made and you're receiving negative consequences or there's the threat of negative consequences because of an act of integrity you've, you've, you've made. And so if that's you, then 
the book of Ruth would just say, it's worth it. It's worth it to, to stick to your integrity. It's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. It's tempting to compromise and think that there's, a, there's an easy catch over here. But the book of Ruth would say, no, it's, it's integrity is worth the sacrifice. And then I think this book, it does speak to those who feel like maybe Ruth, the Moabite foreigner at the beginning of the book. I'm not connected anywhere to anyone. And this book would say, if you're a Christian, you are. You have a glorious connection. You have a part in this people. You do. Even if you don't feel it, it's there. And in fact, it will never be taken away. You are part of the people of God. You're part of and it's the family of God as well. It gets even greater. You're not just, you're not just a, 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 a citizen in a city. You're a member of God's family, a child of God. You are all sons of God through faith, not just heirs of Abraham, which is a, which is a unique and special blessing. But you are also sons of God through faith. There is no greater blessing than that. If, that's, if, that's, if you're a Christian, you have that, the greatest thing you could ever possess. You are part of something eternal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Ruth and, and just the layered treasure that's inside of it. Lord, what a wonderful narrative it is. How, what a vivid picture it is of the way that you weave your purposes into the seemingly normal affairs of our lives. So Father, we just pray that you would give us all the self-denial and self-control we need to walk in integrity. We recognize, Lord, that, that apart from you, we, we cannot and we won't walk in obedience. Lord, we recognize, Lord, that it's only your work in us which gives us the desire for holiness and the ability to walk in that holiness. So even though we, we've loved and respected the example of Boaz, we also see that apart from you, we can't do it. We cannot. So we thank you for your complete solution. The shed blood of Jesus washes us clean from all of our failures, all those failures of integrity that we have. That's a long list, Lord. All those failures of integrity are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for that. And we thank you that our union with Christ, being a son of God, being in him and having him in us means that we can walk in integrity as we go forward. We don't need to assume that our 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 future contains only failures and no obedience. If you are alive in us, Lord, we know that there is hope for integrity in all the battles and temptations that we face in the future going forward. So change us, Lord. Make us more like Boaz in all the right ways, like Ruth in all the right ways. Also, we get to celebrate Jesus, whose name is above every name, who is the king above every king. Pray in his name.